October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast, episode number 59, Fundamentalism, a Like Story. Last time, we talked about Holmes and Washburn's reaction to the 1919 Bible Conference and how they led this ugly, mud-slinging influence campaign to get the General Conference president fired, which succeeded, sort of. And we talked about how their spirit of a militant fundamentalism has endured, not just in the Adventist Church, of course. You will find it everywhere. So let's continue talking about fundamentalism. I want to begin on a Sunday in 1922 when Harry Emerson Fosdick ascended the pulpit of First Presbyterian Church in New York City. Fosdick was the first modern megachurch pastor in American history. His books sold in the millions. His sermons were played each week on the radio and two million people at least tuned in. He wrote articles for the New York Times. He described his sermons as counseling on a group scale. You couldn't avoid Harry Emerson Fosdick. Now, Fosdick was a Baptist, even though he pastored this prestigious Presbyterian congregation. And the title of Fosdick's sermon this particular Sunday was, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And that sermon started a war. Now, William Jennings Bryan, who was a career politician, he'd run for president like 100,000 times, he had been visiting college campuses lately and just blasting evolution. It's kind of been a, a glorious second act of Bryan's career taking on evolution. Now, in early 1922, Bryan wrote a piece for the New York Times against evolution. Brian's arguments weren't scientifically literate. I mean, like many people then and now, he said evolution was not a scientific fact, only a hypothesis, which to him meant a guess. But of course, in scientific terms, that's not what hypothesis means. And Brian believed, like most people, that religion was the only means of morality. And if you give up Christianity, it's going to be this chaotic, lawless society. If Brian's argument wasn't scientifically sound, it was politically shrewd. I mean, he baited Christian evolutionists just to come out, cut to the chase, and acknowledge that they were atheists. And he did that at a time when most Americans still had strong beliefs in favor of Christianity. And so coming out as an atheist, well, there could be severe repercussions for doing that. But here he is, he's baiting them, come out, come on, just admit you're an atheist, just admit you're an atheist, right? Knowing very well that if they did, well, you know, you might lose your job or be ridiculed or whatever it may be. Harry Emerson Fosdick was no atheist, but he did take up Brian's challenge. He was appalled at Brian's article and wrote a wonderfully eloquent reply to the New York Times. Fosdick took the approach most theistic evolutionists take today, saying Brian doesn't understand science, his views are medieval, so on and so forth. Fosdick promised that if Brian wants to run around the country passing laws banning the teaching of evolution, which Brian was doing, then Fosdick will be happy to make that task as hard as possible. So when Fosdick ascended the pulpit at First Presbyterian a few weeks later, he had had enough 
of the fundamentalist movement. It is true, Fosdick said, quote, that just now the fundamentalists are giving us one of the worst exhibitions of bitter intolerance that the churches of this country have ever seen. There are many opinions in the field of modern controversy concerning which I am not sure whether they are right or wrong. But there is one thing I am sure of. Courtesy and kindliness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistaken. Love never is. I plead thus for an intellectually hospitable, tolerant, liberty-loving church, end quote. Fosdick said he knew plenty of Christian people. Some believed in the incarnation of Jesus and others didn't. Who cares? What matters most of all was just being kind and loving as Christians. Just be tolerant of one another. We have a world of secular people to win. So let's just stop fighting each other and worrying about who is in and who is out. And that's pretty much when Fosdick was fired. But don't worry about our friend Fosdick. His patron was somebody named John D. Rockefeller Jr. And Mr. Rockefeller loved Fosdick's sermon, so much so that he sent the sermon to a few hundred thousand of his closest friends and then built Fosdick his own church. Hey, if there's any Rockefellers listening, give me a call sometime, okay? I got some plans. Anyways, Brian and Fosdick, they, they transformed the fundamentalist modernist argument into a full-fledged culture war. And it was more than just a war of words. It was a war that broke denominations that caused a number of people to lose their jobs or fear losing your jobs or to quit going to their churches. The earliest of these militant fundamentalists in Adventism, right, Holmes and Washburn, they tried to get some Adventist teachers fired as well, not just the general conference president. So we see this influence of fundamentalism within Adventism. And despite the example of Holmes and Washburn, Adventists jumped in on the fundamentalist side. Now, it's worth reminding you that the word fundamentalist has a different meaning today. It's often used today to describe somebody as kind of an insult, uh, sometimes somebody who might be violent, like when you hear in the news about Islamic or Christian terrorists being called fundamentalists, right? Christian fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism, as if that's automatically a sign that they're violent, bad people. Or more often, it's used to describe a believer who is anti-intellectual, believes in conspiracy theories, doesn't trust social institutions, interprets the Bible way too literally, is narrow-minded, is anti-science, and I think you, you get the point. Fundamentalism in the 1920s was a movement to protect what were believed to be the essential doctrines in Christianity from what we refer to and what they refer to as modernism. Now, those essential doctrines were things like the inspiration of the Bible, belief in miracles, Jesus' physical death and resurrection, and modernism is this huge umbrella movement introducing quote-unquote higher criticism, what we call historical criticism today, a skepticism about whether these miracles described in the Bible really happened, and a belief in evolution. And it's worth reminding my dear listeners 
that fundamentalism traveled through phases. We talked about those at one point. And fundamentalism only took on a militant tone during the 1920s and 30s. That's when it, it began to take it on. Which, of course, is when Adventists got on board. You're going to have a theological fight and expect Adventists to sit out? Fools. Anyways, Adventists unleashed a torrent of words in the fundamentalist war in all of their major papers. Books came flying off the press, which I mean metaphorically, because, well, that'd be awesome to do that literally. Anyways, books with what we would call clickbait titles today, like Christianity at the Crossroads and The Battle of the Churches, Modernism or Fundamentalism. And it's clear that Adventists had adopted the war mentality, the militant mentality of fundamentalism as well. Leroy Froome, an ambitious young editor on the rise, kept the issues of fundamentalism and modernism front and center on the pages of his paper, The Watchman. Froome called modernism treason and labeled modernists traitors inside the battlements of the grand old fortress of Zion. His writing is vivid and sensational. One can imagine his readers sitting on the edge of their pews as they read lines like, quote, the modernist movement has produced the tragedy of the ages and the most critical hour in the history of the church is upon us, end quote. Look, Avenus didn't engage in cultural struggles, far less the internal squabbling of other denominations, unless they could frame it in terms of the last days. So Avenus interpreted American slavery as a sign that America is the false prophet in Revelation 13. They saw alcohol and they crusaded for temperance and later on for prohibition. They saw alcohol as a demonic substance, making it impossible for people to accept this end-time message. Adventists were interested in World War I, mostly to the extent that it related to the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 11. And so Froome interpreted the modernist controversy as a kind of final assault upon the church in history. Froome called it, quote, the most profoundly significant religious conflict since the Reformation. End quote. And like the Reformation, the fundamentalist controversy was breaking the church in half. Eventually, the fundamentalists would leave, form their own denomination, like the Primitive Baptists or the Evangelical Methodists. But in the early 1920s, many wondered whether the result of this war would be two super denominations, the fundamentalist church and the liberal church. William Bell Riley, one of the fundamentalist leaders, said that there should actually be three denominations, fundamentalism, liberalism, and Catholicism. Can't forget the Catholics. Now, that possibility, however remote it may have actually been, seemed to play into Adventism's prophetic scenarios. William Founts, the long-serving president of Brown University, was quoted as saying that we have 202 denominations? Quote, why not two? One liberal and the other fundamentalist, end quote. Founts went on to describe fundamentalist Baptists, members of his own church who he disagreed with, and he said that it, quote, seems likely 
to slough off and establish a new denomination in close sympathy with Second Adventists, end quote. Right? He wanted those fundamentalist Baptists in his church to just kind of run off and, and go join a new denomination like the Seventh-day Adventists. It's always a nice feeling when the president of an Ivy League university knows who you are, although I'm pretty sure he meant that as an insult to the Baptists, right? That Fonts saw a connection between Adventists and fundamentalist Baptists was not an exaggeration. Throughout the 1920s, Adventists managed to inject themselves pretty deeply into the fundamentalist movement. In one case, a young fundamentalist Methodist pastor preached an anti-evolution sermon, which he had gotten from Signs of the Times. William Bell Riley, that leader of the World Christian Fundamentals Association, quoted the Adventist scientist George McCready Price in his debates with modernists. William Jennings Bryan, arguably the most visible fundamentalist leader until his death, spoke at Union College several times. In fact, when Bryan died, the General Conference voted to send a note of condolence to his wife. So because Adventists were so close to the fundamentalist movement, it naturally raised a lot of questions like, are we fundamentalists? The General Conference decided to issue a statement of beliefs on where Adventists stood on some of these issues being tossed around. So the GC went on to make three articles of faith, three statements of faith. First, Adventists believed in the inspiration and divine preservation of the Bible. Second, Adventists believed in a six-day creation. Third, Adventists believed in miracles, including the incarnation, resurrection, and second coming. Now, the statement was crafted by three people over the course of a week, so it was carefully considered enough. And you'll notice, though, that the church declined to endorse a particular theory of inspiration, though there was undoubtedly pressure to support a kind of verbal dictation theory of inspiration, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago. Plenty of Adventists believed in that theory, but it was never made official. And what's also interesting is, is how this general conference statement lines up against the Presbyterian five points of fundamentalism, which ended up becoming a kind of theological definition of fundamentalism. So if you believe these five things, you're a fundamentalist. And this was done in, in 1909. And these five points were the inerrancy of the Bible, Christ's virgin birth, Jesus's substitutionary atonement, Jesus's physical resurrection, and the reality of miracles. So the general conference statement basically aligns itself clearly with four out of these five fundamentalist points. The only point of difference was that the general conference ignored the point about inerrancy of the Bible. And as we've discussed, many, if not most Adventists in the 1920s agreed with the fundamentalists on this point. It was just never made an official belief. In 1927, the World Christian Fundamentals Association released a new nine-point statement of belief. And the Australian version of Science of the Times reported on these nine points, concluding that, quote, the science of the times has always stood valiantly for each and every point elaborated, end quote, except for one phrase about an eternal hell. So were Adventists at that time fundamentalists? They often identified as fundamentalists. Adventists routinely bragged that they were the fundamentalists of the fundamentalists 
and the only true fundamentalist and the chief of the fundamentalists. Perhaps no statement was as sweeping as that of the new General Conference president, William A. Spicer. Quote, all through the years from 1844 on down, the whole teaching of the Advent message has been fundamentalism itself. End quote. A future General Conference president, William H. Branson, declared, quote, I am a Seventh-day Adventist because I am a confirmed fundamentalist, end quote which kind of implies that he's only an Avenist because he's first a fundamentalist. Like, in order to become an Avenist, you first must be a fundamentalist. As late as 1957, when fundamentalism itself was winding down under a withering bombardment by a new generation of evangelicals and, shall we say, cultural fatigue with all of this fighting. Anyways, as late as 1957, Avenist wrote to two fundamentalist leaders, if we find ourselves differing, this is a quote, if we find ourselves differing with most fundamentalists and all modernists, that is because they have abandoned the historicist position. Our view represents the position once held by their spiritual ancestors, end quote. In other words, we Adventists are the true fundamentalists. The fundamentalists themselves have departed from the true path. A Baptist paper certainly recognized however begrudgingly, that Adventists were indeed fundamentalists. They wrote that Adventists, quote, can out-fundamentalize the fundamentalists as well as fairly argue one's coat off his back, end quote. Again, a kind of a backhanded compliment of sorts. So were Adventists at that time fundamentalists? Well, you can detect in that last statement, the, the one from 1957, that Adventists didn't find the fundamentalist movement fundamentalist enough. In a new magazine being established called The Ministry, Leroy Froome complained that modernism had been rising for decades with few to protest it until, quote, the fundamentalist movement, defective as it is, arose among the denominations, end quote. Now, for Froome, Froome is particularly disappointed that fundamentalism wasn't an Adventist-initiated movement, right? Like, this should have been something we started. We should have led the charge against modernism. Another Adventist writer, echoing the, the traitor language that Froome often used, wrote in Signs of the Times, quote, The modernist is not the only traitor to the Protestant cause. The fundamentalist who denies even one Bible doctrine is as effectually denying the infallibility of that book as the modernist who denies a host of Bible doctrines, end quote. His point, for instance, is that a fundamentalist who refuses to accept the Sabbath might as well be a modernist, right? You're going to reject one point of truth. You might as well just reject the entire Bible so were Adventists at that time fundamentalists? Adventists clearly aligned themselves with fundamentalism. They boasted in calling themselves fundamentalists. They adopted both the black and white worldview of fundamentalism and the militant tone of attacking liberalism. Adventists provided material aid to fundamentalists. But you also see signs of separation. You see signs of Adventists criticizing the fundamentalist movement. Perhaps we could say Adventism was fundamentalist, but fundamentalism 
wasn't Adventist. Canadian Adventist leader H.A. Lukens attended a fundamentalist meeting in 1928. While Adventists and fundamentalists had much in common, Lukens saw a lot of differences at this meeting. He wrote, quote, Let none suppose that Seventh-day Adventists are to be accepted as a normal part of fundamentalism by its proponents. In private conversation, it was easy to detect a bitterness against our movement on the part of some of the leading speakers, which exceed the publicly expressed bitterness against modernism. In this, as in all other questions, Seventh-day Adventists stand alone on the platform of real truth. End quote. It's telling of how fundamentalism was developing that Lukens could get the impression that some of the fundamentalists were far more bitter about Adventists in private than what they said about modernists in public. I mean, are Adventists really the enemy here? Are we really the fundamentalist's worst problem? So we see these seeds of fundamentalism beginning to enter its third phase, where it becomes far more focused on heresy hunting and purifying the pews. We'll come across that again when we enter the 1950s and talk about those two fundamentalist evangelicals uh, who said that Adventists are a cult and how Adventism somewhat controversially had to deal with that. So the relationship between Adventists and fundamentalism is complicated. If you ask me, the the fundamentalist mindset has survived in Adventism. In some places, it's very strong. Those tendencies to hunt heresies and purify the pews are very strong in certain corners of Adventism. The militancy toward culture, the suspicion of higher learning, of, of universities, a lot of that still remains. But alas, we're getting off topic. Anyway, the relationship between Adventists and fundamentalists is deep. Adventists were present at the Niagara Conference in the late 1800s and witnessed the formation of an early fundamentalist creed called the Niagara Creed. Adventists could agree with most of this creed, if it wasn't a creed, of course, except for one of the last points condemning those who don't believe hell lasts forever. Now, that might seem like a strange thing that needs to be included in a fundamentalist creed, but there it was. It even seems like it might have been aimed at preventing Adventists from fully agreeing with them. No, I mean, that's actually true, because apparently a handful of Adventists who had attended had made somewhat of a nuisance of themselves in Niagara, trying to convince the other Christians there, the other kind of early fundamentalists there, to be more like us, to believe that the the soul sleeps when it dies, to believe that hell does not last forever, to believe in something called annihilationism. And so, as a result, the early fundamentalists forming the Niagara Creed said, uh, yeah, hell lasts forever, and those who believe in annihilationism are wrong and bad and blah, blah, blah. So it was, it was designed to prevent Adventists from kind of really joining forces with those early fundamentalists. So thanks, guys. So I would like at this time, toward the end of this episode, to perform for you my one-act play entitled Adventists and Fundamentalism, A Like Story. <clears throat> the Niagara Creed was a sign on the door that said, Modernism must be stopped. Also, we don't want any help from weird Christians. Adventists were like, Psh, 
we're just going to ignore your creed and we're going to find ways of agreeing with you whether you like it or not because, hey, modernism sucks and we all need to stick together to fight it. And fundamentalists are like, no, we really got this. We don't need your help at all. You all smell like tofu. And if we're seen together, people are going to think we agree on stuff and then they're not going to like us very much. So please don't come and pee in our perfectly clear doctrinal pool. And Adventists are like, but we have George McCready Price, even though that's not his real middle name, and he's good at science and stuff, and he can help you fight the Darwin. And fundamentalists are like, oh, dang, we really need him, because ever since we started hating on colleges and we quit them, we forgot to bring our science with us. But still, we don't like you. Just send him to us. The rest of you stay home. And Adventists are like, whatever, dudes, we're just going to cosplay as fundamentalists for the next 30 years, even though we don't believe in Halloween. And that, my friends, is my one-act play, which I'm happy to perform in a living room near you. Oh, and I promise we'll get to George McCready Price again in, like, two episodes. In our next episode, which marks five solid years of doing this podcast, woohoo! we're going to talk about the ways fundamentalism managed to change Adventism. If Adventism couldn't change fundamentalism, fundamentalism definitely could change Adventism, and change Adventism in a way that Adventists didn't necessarily recognize. And the change has been so complete that many Adventists today have grown up thinking that what they believe, how they were raised as Adventists, is in fact original Adventism when it's really fundamentalist Adventism. So we're going to talk about how fundamentalism influenced the Adventist church especially on the topic of movie theaters, inspiration, and of course, women. This episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. Yay, welcome back, Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. So to check them out, Go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and bad hair. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign-up for the bus tour itself, but 
but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.